Hi folks and welcome to the Leadership Tales podcast. I'm your host Colin Hunter and today we've got a special bonus episode and we're looking back at some of the highlights from our previous series. A lot of fascinating people on the show and I wanted to highlight a few of what I think are the greatest moments that we've had over the podcast run. So we've got back to some of the best clips from series one and series two and we compiled them together for this special episode. So the episode features highlights from Andy Slee. Amazing story, three-part story of his career, taking us right up to the work he does at Clear School, but going back into some of the work he did at Skyscanner. Great conversation, great individual, Andy. Leanne Davy, so one of my partners in crime, amazing lady, power of conflict and power of positive conflict in your life. And again, she'll talk a lot around her background, how she's come across these ideas and how she works with those. And then Corsten de Riggs, and a great insight into how you can use comedy and how you can have a serious focus, a serious message, and how you can use that to start conversations in a different way. Jamie Smart, one of the biggest influences on my career so far in terms of his book, Clarity, and that concept of falling out of your own thinking, which I, I love. Andrew Webster, Mr. Webster, as I call him. Again, brilliant thinker, brilliant man, part of our advisory board, but tells the story of his work when he was building a career into innovation and how he's taken that innovation work into the work he does with Experience Point, a fantastic Canadian company. Maureen Finn, one of my longest standing clients, and again, the stories of what Maureen's brought to her life and how she, she conducts herself and what drives her in terms of what she does in the client side. And then Brian Beckham, a lawyer with a cause, a cause to fight for the, the rights of individuals Again, loved the conversation with Brian, was involved with his podcast as well. And when you listen to the themes that he brings forward about his father and his background, uh, again, it's a great story to listen to. Peter Leder, a great friend, but also his story about dyslexia and how that's driven some of his, the way he leads and, and what a leader he is. So it's great to hear that, that clip again. Sarah Monroe, Shed Method, background coaching, high performance, and how she's brought herself to that work. Again, an influence in what my thinking is and a, a partner to one of my old colleagues who I always found a, a powerful figure in Simon Scott. And finally, James Turner. And I love the conversation with James because of the journey he's taken in terms of how he recruits individuals, how he takes them from different places now, how he thinks about recruitment in a different way. Great story. So let's dive right in, enjoy. Andy Slee. Tell us a bit about Skyscanner for those who don't know it. Yeah, so Skyscanner is an online travel business. It was founded back in the early 2000s by three guys, and Gareth Williams, the CEO, built Skyscanner to work out which was the cheapest way to get to the slopes at any given time. It was really, there was just an explosion of options when it came to booking flights out of the UK and, and into Europe. So let's dig into Skyscanner Asia because that was some of your biggest development, your biggest stretching and your biggest learning. Tell us some of the peaks and drops in there. It was a huge stretch for me, to be honest. You know, I persuaded the leadership team that I wasn't just someone that wrote reports and, and did PowerPoints that I really had what it took to execute on some of this stuff. And at the time, I had almost no evidence of that. So they, to be fair to them, they took a massive punt on me, which I'm you know really grateful for. I remember turning up the first day and I was small multicultural team what they 
built was essentially business in Singapore and a small office that was trying to build Skyscanner across 14 markets in Asia. So what my predecessor had done quite sensibly is go out and hire 14 people for 14 different nationalities from those markets, which you can do in Singapore because it's so, so diverse. But I remember going in on the first day and sort of laying out my market, you know, this is why I'm here, this is what I'm going to do. And internally, I remember just thinking, Christ, I, I've got no idea what I'm doing here. <laughs> and then what, what do I do next when I sit down at my, my laptop? What am I actually going to do? The big sort of jumps that I made were quite early on, I, I realized that there was a choice to be made at Skyscanner in Asia about where the opportunities lay. And there was an easy option and a hard option. The easy option was to go after the English speaking markets where you could take a, a British brand and it would probably be quite easy to transplant it into them and there would be decent money to be made. So, you know, Australia, New Zealand, to a certain extent, Singapore, Hong Kong, you, know, you could take those on and we were doing pretty well there already. So it was just a case of continuing on that path and maximizing the opportunity. But the really big opportunity was going after the North Asian markets. You know, look at the size of the population in those English-speaking markets, it's probably 30 million. If you add up China, Japan, South Korea, you're looking at 1.5 billion people. So from that perspective, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? But then you look at just the complexities of operating in those local markets, the regulatory challenges, the language, you know, just taking a skyscanner product and turning it into a website with Chinese or Japanese characters versus the Roman alphabet. You know, that in itself is a big challenge that we had to take on. So I went after it, but it took, took some persuading of the leadership team that that was the right thing to do. And it was a really big balancing act in my first six months, which was trying to build my credentials with the team in Singapore and convince them that I really understood the internet economy and how it all worked rather than being a boring management consultant and try and get to know them, but also persuading the leadership team back in the UK that sort of the go big or go home strategy was the right one. So that was always a tough balancing act, actually. I would say anyone who's working in an organization that has operations in Asia should really think carefully about how best to interact with them. You know, the time difference in itself is so challenging if you're operating at the leadership level in Asia and every single important conversation you have is at four o'clock or later in your day when you've been up, you know, since eight, nine o'clock running at everything. I always found that pretty challenging. And then you had the sort of connection points, which the classic seagull management, everyone that's in a, an outpost, so to speak, in whichever business, you know, the managers can, can fly in shit and leave. That's always a challenge that you get. And so I had to really, in the early days, find the right balance between making sure that the business didn't stop just because the CEO or the COO was coming in, but also making sure that we had our stories together and that the, you know, the team were all singing from the same hymn sheet and we were very clear on what we were trying to do. And it, to be honest, it didn't always get that balance right. And I had to build relationships with people who were under a huge amount of pressure from the board. Leanne Davey. Talk to me about the system of productive conflict for those listening, because that would be useful. So there are two core tools that we use. And the first one is a tool that allows you to get clearer with one another about expectations. So what is the unique value of each layer in an organization? How do they add that value proactively before work is done instead of reactively? 
So the stupid analogy I use is imagine you're in a team meeting and it's about five minutes before the end and you're kind of packing up your stuff and everybody's getting fidgety. And the boss says like, hang on, don't go anywhere yet. So I got this message from on high that apparently the company's doing a bake sale to raise money for charity. I need everybody to bake for the bake sale. And you're in a huge hurry and the boss is in a hurry and you're like, fine, I'll bake. Okay, whatever. And so everybody runs off. And so you're wrecking your brain trying to figure out what you're going to bake. And so you decide that your carrot zucchini muffins are always a huge hit with your friends. And so you're going to make your carrot zucchini muffins. And you slave over them. And you're so proud of them when you bring in this tray of muffins, the golden crispy tops. And then the boss takes one look at your muffins and goes, Muffins? Who makes muffins for a bake sale? And then the boss kind of goes like, I'll fix it. And he grabs a thing of M&Ms or something from the vending machine. He starts shoving M&Ms into your carrot muffins, your beautiful muffins. So I always tell this stupid story because I feel like this is exactly what happens in organizations all the time. We get unclear directions. We don't take time to get aligned. We don't admit that we aren't clear. We go off and, and do a bunch of work sometimes just to show that you know, we take accountability and, and whatever else. We do the work. We never let anyone taste the batter. <laughs> we just like go straight to the finished product. And then they're disappointed in that product. They kind of change it after the fact where it tends to not work and make everybody feel frustrated. I'm frustrated you ruined my beautiful work. You're frustrated that I didn't get the spec right in the first place. And this is what happens all the time. And I get a lot of leaders are like, oh, Leanne, I have been known to shove M&Ms into a baked muffin. So when we add this language around, okay, like let's get aligned on the recipe. Is this a bake sale for a bunch of vegans in Birkenstocks? Or is this a bake sale for a bunch of kids? <laughs> like we need yeah. to know because it matters. Right. Yeah. And then this is the recipe I'm going to bake. Is that good? Because it's a lot easier to change the course on what recipe before you've bought the ingredients and then taste the batter. And right. There's a lot of yeah. stages. This process that we've built helps teams to get clarified on What's the unique value of every layer? How does every layer set the next layer up to be successful? How do we add that value more proactively, less reactively? And then, you know, what's the value we can add in the review and governance of work with people expecting that they're not going to get a rubber stamp and a gold star, that people, when they bring work, are going to improve it. But the improving it is more like maybe some sprinkles on top, not like shoving M&Ms into the batter. So that's half of the equation. The second half of the equation is a process for naming and mapping the tensions that should exist on a healthy team. Yes, we have common goals when we're on cross-functional teams, but we aren't in the same boat. We mm -hmm. aren't pulling the same direction. In fact, our entire purpose is to pull in different directions. We have different expertise. We have different stakeholders. We are obliged to put tension. So we want sales pushing to make something more compelling, more customized, more differentiated. And we want operations pulling hard to say, no, we want it more standardized, more consistent, more scalable. Those two should always be intention. And at the same time, quality should be like, oh, hey, <laughs> and right. 
the second process that we roll out broadly in organizations is to map the tensions that are supposed to be there to help people have a language and an empathy for the different perspectives and to get to what I call, you know, conflict as a feature, not a bug. And so those two processes that make these natural tensions and conflicts a habit, have these conversations extremely frequently with low intensity. That's the system that helps us make productive conflict as part of our everyday conversations, as opposed to these big events. Corsten de Riggs. For a lot of people listening and thinking, you know, oh, I could never do stand-up or improv. How has it worked? How have you been able to craft that? So one of the things I've always loved, like when we talked about the amount of time I spent in leadership development, is that people are riddled with doubt, always will second guess themselves and helping people break out of that mindset was like a substantial portion, actually almost half of my life at this point, spending time with people and coaching and doing that around projects. So it becomes just part of you. You zero in on really cool qualities about people that you see glimpses of, but you try and encourage them to explore. And so I think there are only two other people who've done stand-up that were a part of the, the crew of nine and other people make, you're just really funny. You're fast, you're quick witted. Or I noticed that whenever you pipe in, you say these very insightful comments in a serious way, but I wonder what that would be like if this were comedy. And so we just tested it out. And what I ended up doing was just continuing to encourage people individually and trying mm-hmm. to create a safe space for people to try things out. And then people just grew into it. And then, you know, people got more comfortable putting out tweets that they never used to put out before or sketches that they didn't put out before. And it was great to see that coming from the fact that the team came together and learned to leave it open and, you know, that yes and factor and just kind of go with the flow. And then offline, you just spend your time encouraging people, you know? Talk to me about the failure piece of this. You know, when you're up there, the tumbleweed is rolling through. What's the experience like? It's hard to predict sometimes, but I'll tell you my first comedy show in club 54 out in Burlington as 18. And it was my first time going to an actual club as an amateur and not doing private events. Private events are a safe space. When you you quickly read your crowd, you know what you're dealing with. You don't know what you're going to get in a comedy club. And there was a guy in the audience and he heckled me. I was like, Oh shit. Heckler. I've never really dealt with that before. And it's not so much that he was interrupting me. It's what he was saying because he was like, oh, he's just going to talk about all the black shows. Let me guess, Roots, right? Roots. He wasn't a black dude. He was a, he was a white man <laughs> in his middle age, like heckling an 18-year-old who was out there for the first time. And so in that moment, this is when I learned that on one hand, stick to what you know and stick to what you came with because I responded to him and I put him in his place but I didn't like how I felt doing it. And in that moment, like it kind of changed the energy of my show. I remember I forgot my lines and I pulled out my script. And I remember I had to read the first line out loud to get back on track. And the audience was gracious. They laughed intently after that, but it was my second worst show, I would say. And yeah, it was just also my first experience. So it's just, you have to kind of get up and keep going. The second thing is this about scripting and leadership. How has it helped you in terms of almost releasing that script in your outside comedy piece? How has it helped you in the rest of your work? A script for me is always like a starting place. 
you have to learn to let go of the script, whatever it is, if you're truly trying to embrace the craft. And another way of phrasing that is templates are only ever meant to get you started. If you rely on templates, you will always need a template. That's the same thing for sending emails to clients. It's the same thing for doing presentations. What I try and encourage people to do whenever I'm in a position of leadership is to let go of templates and focus on developing reflexes, which really come from active listening. Let go of your own language, like use the client's language if they're giving you important terms. Take the time to ask why, like don't just glance over powerful emotional moments that are happening in the conversation. And sometimes that means let go of your agenda. If you call someone and you're trying to sell them a workshop and they tell you that they're, you know, they're in a snowstorm and you know, all of a sudden, like just pause and like live in that space for a minute before you move on and like ask them what they have planned for the rest of the day and get a little bit more glimpse into their world. You wouldn't do that if you were on script. And even if you were on a script that had a question like that, you would glance over the next question and you would move on. So I learned like, it's just, all about embracing those moments when you are present in, in the presence and having enough trust in the quality of the relationship that you're in, you're communicating with to kind of just let go of, I guess, forcefully trying to drive a conversation to a, a scripted outcome and just follow where the, the energy goes in the moment. Jamie Smart. The principles are basically just a way of describing an innate capacity that we all have for peace of mind, for well-being, for love and connection, for fresh new ideas. And it's funny, Colin, a question I'll often ask, I've asked literally thousands of people, business leaders, audiences of coaches and trainers, you know, members of the public, I ask, when do you get your best ideas? And Almost invariably, the answers are when I'm taking a shower, when I'm out for a run, when I'm at the gym, when I'm walking in the woods, when I'm first waking up in the morning, when I'm just drifting off to sleep at night, when I'm in the bath, when I'm walking in nature. We instinctively know that we get our best ideas when we're not thinking about the things that have been preoccupying us. And that right there points to an innate capacity for insight and realization. And that's a capacity we were all born with. Like if you stop and think about it for a moment, we weren't born knowing how to talk, knowing how to walk. We were born into a world where everything was unknown and brand new. And Yet in the first three, four, five, six, seven years of life, we learned so much. We built these really, really useful and accurate models of reality that allowed us to operate in gravity, well, you know, running around to, to communicate with others that allowed us to do all kinds of things under embodied understandings that we use to this day, right? Well, every single one of those embodied understandings arrived through insight and realization, through that innate capacity for insight and realization that we all have going for us. When I'm working with a client, Colin, I'm looking to find my way into that deep connection with them, but I'm also wanting to model for my client looking in the direction of the unknown. If you think about it, when someone's either got a problem they're trying to solve or a goal they're trying to achieve and they can't find the way forward or anything like that, the stuff that's getting in their way is all the stuff they know. They're like, I know this and I know that and I know that. And my assertion is the answer, the thing that's going to resolve it is going to come from what you don't yet know. So I want to model looking in the direction of what I don't yet know.
you know, little children, we give them, you know, a teddy bear or a, a blanket or a pillow or whatever it might be that's a, a kind of often referred to as a transitional object when they're growing up. And the child holding the teddy bear, they feel a sense of comfort and peace and security from that teddy bear. And if you accidentally like leave it in a hotel when you're on holiday and come home without it, the kid freaks out because they haven't got their telly. And they feel like the source of their security and well-being is somehow being taken away. But as adults, we can see that 100% of that experience of security and well-being comes from within the child. It comes from their psychological and physical properties. So the teddy bear, aside from having a fluffy coat, is it's neutral. You could literally give the baby um, a Osama bin Laden doll or a Saddam Hussein doll or, or whatever you like, and it would have the same effect because it's coming from within the child. But how many of us as adults think it's somehow different when it comes to the teddy bear of money or partner or job or physical health or any of the other things that we sometimes chase after. It genuinely seems to us like our feelings of security, peace, comfort, well-being, belonging are coming from those adult teddy bears of money, job, accomplishment, praise, validation, all those teddy bears, you know, the teddy bears that we long for or the teddy bears we don't think we could do without. And there's a way in which often as we go through life, it's almost like life and our psychology conspires to show us that we don't need them. Andrew Webster. I got to interview Tim in, in front of folks that during that project, and then we kicked off a project. We partnered with the Canadian Heart and Stroke Foundation, which is exactly what you think. They're, they're an incredible organization of the most wonderful people that are just dedicating to saving lives. And it's kind of the, the last mile for heart and stroke. So more and more people are conscious of it and there are medications that mean it's not even the number one killer pre-pandemic here anymore. But when people do have an episode to get them treated with defibrillators or know how to, to save people that have had an experience or incidents, that's the project we were looking at and brought together some of those folks from Canadian Heart and Stroke Foundation that were generous to participate in this with us. And our global network, we had in that room fallen people from, you know, I think a couple dozen countries as far away as South Africa and Dubai. To many of the states were covered there. So these were business leaders and design leaders within organizations and folks like you, thought leaders, just to apply design thinking, not to a business challenge, but how are we going to help Canadians that witness a stroke event to save lives? And it's, it is a beautiful design challenge. And there were some great prototypes that came out of there. What's your views on leadership and the impact of, of innovation, design thinking and leadership? The quote we like is a changed person entering an unchanged organization is likely to, to just drown in a pool of frustration. If you've seen what's possible, you've developed a new skill and you're not allowed to flex that skill, that can be really frustrating. And indeed, 
say, enthusiasm decays into cynicism very quickly. So the enthusiastic, not just individual, but groups or organizations of individuals, if they're excited about, yes, we do need to be more customer-centric, and we hear it all the time, leaders saying, all right, it's cool to fail here now, or we're going to be the sort of organization that innovates within X amount of time, those leaders have lit a fuse. And if they don't deliver on that, the promise that is either explicit or implicit in what they've said, people are going to become cynical and then you're working from a deficit. It's worse than if you've never mentioned anything to begin with. People will dig in, they get some of that syndrome of how oh, we've tried that before. I've heard this before. So leaders can generate a lot of enthusiasm by setting a vision, but it is lighting a fuse. There's a responsibility that you create in that moment as a leader to follow through. And for something like a new capability set, like design thinking, First of all, the leader has to connect it to a vision. We've be more wrong, Colin. I have too many stories. It took me rather too long to learn this lesson that is crystallized for us now. If an organization rallies people around design thinking, that's not a very sustainable movement. And this is a social movement to create change in an organization. Design thinking is a means to an end. It is a toolkit. So really, how is design thinking serving us? It is a tool to enable growth behaviors or a tool to enable customer centricity or a digital transformation because our customers are increasingly digital or for us to compete. It's what are we trying to accomplish here and connect the capability to that vision is the role of the leader and then enable the right conditions for new behaviors to thrive. It's also a responsibility of the leader. One way to look at it, and, and this sounds really clinical, but just a starting place is can think of what are the rhythm systems and channels that we can influence as leaders or empower other people to influence. A rhythm, something like we have check-ins with people. What new questions are we asking in those check-ins that suggest, oh, I expect you to be trying new things? Channels, if people are socializing through a Yammer or Gchat or some other group, how do we influence the communication there or create a permission for people to share new stories, things done differently? Or if you follow Dave Snowden like that, once you replace old stories into an organization with new stories, the narrative changes. That's how change happens. And then systems. Those are things like performance management systems, um, structures like infrastructure. Do we have a group of catalysts or other that are responsible for waving the culture flags? Those are some of the things a leader can start with in addition, of course, to their individual behavior that they model. Maureen Finn. In my former organization where we were doing this, a global company, right? And, you know, we really, we thought we kept that global lens on and we said, okay, we're going to be, you know, we're going to think about, you know, be culturally aware. And, you know, we were using all the right words, right? But we went into the Japanese market, Colin, remember? We went there yeah, and boy, did, did we fail, right? Yeah. Because we just, as much as we were prepared, we weren't. We weren't prepared for what we faced. And we thought we had done all the work. We thought we had made the right connections and vetted. And when we got there, we just hadn't. And that was hard. I don't want to say I was gutted because we had so much other good things going on, but it was hard. It was very hard because it really felt like it pulled down all the wonderful work we've been doing and yeah. minimized all the effectiveness we had elsewhere because yeah. of this, I'll call it a failure. I felt yeah. like it was a failure. And so, you know, to navigate that, to get through that and, 
initially, I'll, I won't say it's natural. But I, I, I felt a little defensive, like, oh, my gosh, we did this, we did that. We did, you know, we yeah. really were thoughtful about that approach in that market. It just didn't resonate. What are you doing at the moment to, to, to change maybe some of the things you've been thinking about? In the- so our leaders, they are at a place, and I feel very comfortable making a general statement right now. Yeah. They're completely overwhelmed. They are yeah. overwhelmed. They're maxed out. They're exhausted. And so we as an organization have paid great attention to our employee base due to COVID. And we've done certainly our engagement surveys and we've done lots of pulses and every business unit really they double, triple click into some of the pain points that the employees are feeling. So, you know, we as in the work that we're doing, very conscious of that. And what we're trying to do is even though these folks are stretched and it's a goal for them right now to have any time, when we get them in that virtual live classroom, we do the thoughtful moment in the beginning, try to you know, leave whatever's on your mind, try to leave it at that virtual door. And we bring them into the moment. And, and again, kudos to our colleagues at the, the Potential Square and the facilitators doing that very well. And once you get the mind, I call it a lid shift. So you're shifting their, their lid. lid. Shift a bit, yeah. And once we do that slight lid shift, they're in, they're in the moment and they leave two hours later going, gosh, this was just an amazing use of my time. And you feel like, Maybe we're helping the greater good here because we know the overwhelming feeling is I am exhausted. I can't get away from my computer. I'm on, you know, on Teams all day. I'm on the video all day. So, you know, we're very much aware of that. And we're also, what we did was we did a second think on, we based our experiences on our leadership behaviors. Because, I mean, again, in, in our leadership behaviors, you know, everything flows into our values. So we did like a, a second look at this when we we really understood the reality of folks' mindsets and said, from a content perspective, let's make sure we hone the content of not overwhelming them because when they come into this classroom, they are so darn engaged. And I can't filter through whether this is due to they took that moment to breathe, they're in and they're they're sharing and they get so much out of that peer-to-peer sharing. It's just wonderful to see. So our facilities, we make real-time calls, say, you know what, we're not going to cover that content because we're not going to say to them, let's stop sharing so we can cover this piece. It's just, that's just not how we operate as a partnership. So, you know, we've been very thoughtful about that based on the business conditions. And it's not necessarily to cater business conditions. It's the conditions that have been created because of this global pandemic. Ryan Beckham. I've been a regular meditator for about 15 years, and I think in terms of something that's very healthy, not not only for your mind, but also for your body, that's probably been the biggest game changer for me. And, you know, a lot of people, I think, before they get into meditation, think that it's about stopping your thoughts or it's about some woo-woo kind of spirituality sort of thing. And it really is none of that. And by the way, (laughs) what you realize real quickly in meditation is, you can't stop your thoughts. It's impossible. Exactly. Right? That's yeah. like one of the first things you realize is, is how your mind, your mind just generates these thoughts uh, subconsciously without you really doing anything about it. But meditation is really just about learning more about yourself and how your own mind works. And when you understand how your own mind works, it really gives you a lot of gives you a sense of serenity, a sense of calmness things like that. Martial arts in terms of uh, physical training has been absolutely incredible for me. You know, I've been practicing yoga for over 10 years. 
the martial arts has been just one of the best things I've ever done. One of the things that meditation has taught me is there are times, and I, I know a lot of people listening will relate to this, that voice in your head that's criticizing you, if some other person talked to you the way you talk to yourself, they'd be your worst enemy. And so yeah. I try not to be too hard on myself. I mean, I'm a type A personality and, and, and a pretty driven person, so I'm pretty self-critical at times. I've been a journaler for 20 years. I've been writing in a journal but almost on a daily basis. And one thing I'll do is once a month or so, I'll I'll write down what are the things that really, truly make me happy? Like, what are the things that really give me a deep sense of happiness, not like a temporary sense of happiness? And, and I can tell you one thing I figured, quick story for you. So a year ago, I was at my jiu-jitsu studio, and I, there's different belt rankings, and a beginner is a white belt. In Brazilian jiu-jitsu, you get little stripes on your white belt as you advance until you get a different color belt. And I got my first stripe on my white belt about a year ago. So I was driving home in my car and I started breaking. I broke down. I could not stop crying. The last time I remember this happening is when my daughter was born. She's 13 mm -hmm. now. so about 13 years ago. But I was crying tears of joy mm -hmm. and I could not stop. Mm -hmm. And I actually called my dad on the way home. And I said, Dad, I got to talk to somebody about this because I can't believe how good I feel. And I walk in the door and I've got tears in my eyes and my wife's like, what's wrong? And I said, I just got my first stripe on my white belt, which is just a piece, literally a piece of tape they stick on your white belt. And so I started thinking about it and I was like, over the next few weeks, I was like, gosh, dang, why was I so happy about that? Mm -hmm. And the answer for me was because Brazilian jiu-jitsu is hard. There's no shortcuts, especially when you're older. You got to show up. You got to face your fear every single time you go. I mean, last night I was training with a guy that weighs 50 pounds more than me and is 20 years younger. And what I think I figured out, Colin, is the things that truly give me joy, that mm -hmm. give me a deep sense of happiness, are overcoming challenges and overcoming. I still drink wine and I still love drinking wine. And things like that. But there's a lot of things that I, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners do, that give us kind of a temporary sense of happiness. Yeah, right? I would agree. You know, a quick sense of happiness. The deep, deep, joyful sense of happiness, at least for me, is things like doing things that are consistent with, first of all, having a purpose in life, overcoming obstacles, overcoming challenges. Those are the things. And it was a real eye-opener for me because for good or for bad, I'm in a situation where I could live a pretty comfortable life. I don't have to exercise. I don't have to challenge myself that much. I could literally sit there and watch TV most of the time and do nothing. And what I've realized is maybe the ironic thing about that is success can be really dangerous, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, it can be really dangerous. And I found myself before I started jujitsu, I've had tons of success. I've been really lucky getting lazy and getting soft. And I was like, man, this is dangerous. I need to figure out something to push myself. And so for me, that's a long way to answer your question. But for me, the things that really made me happy, that really give me a deep sense of happiness or doing things consistent with my purpose, overcoming challenges, solving problems, helping other people. It's not those little quick hitters that you can do for yourself to make, mm -hmm. make yourself happy. Peter Lederer.
one of the things we did at Glen Eagles that uh, I think we've talked about a lot when we turned the organization upside down. When I did that and people got completely mad and what was I doing? And it's funny that the management did, the teams didn't because they got it. But, you know, when you've got the traditional hierarchy, the pyramid with its notional leader at the top and the customer at the bottom, especially in a service business, in a business that production and service are often simultaneous, you can't put service into stock. And in a hotel business, in my life, always, we've only got 24 hours to sell your product. And then you start again. You can't put the room in stock and sell it in the future. A meal, you've only got three hours to sell lunch, and that's it. It's gone. And the most perishable product, and nobody's challenged me yet, I think I've managed the most perishable product known, is a golf tea time. It lasts 10 minutes. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, it is actually. <laughs> so it's the ultimate perishable, even more perishable than a newspaper. And newspapers, twenty-four hours. So you live in an environment where you've got to sell it now, and you've got to be good every time, all the time. Everything's very visible. Mm. So when we did the organisation change, people thought it's completely mad. But when they saw that actually, well, the customer is the most important person. The next most important people are the people who are dealing with the customer eight hours a day. Those people who normally organizations tell them to take their brain out and put them with their clothes in the locker uh, before they come to work and then come to work. The fact that they run a very good life outside and but organizations think they don't know anything and can't do anything anyway. Yeah. And then suddenly you freed up these people. We gave them complete freedom, trying to get managers to understand their only job was to support what is now an unstable pyramid because it's on its point. And it falls over if you don't uh, manage it very well and you look mm -hmm. after it very well. They asked us for a limit. Uh, so I said, okay, well, it's 500 pounds. And we said, you've got anybody in the organization has authority over 500 pounds to fix a problem and make sure the customer doesn't leave with that problem, that it's been sorted. And surprise, surprise, it wasn't often used because it was just sorted without doing that. But it gave everybody authority. And it's this, this old thing about purpose, accountability, clarity, and empowerment, you've got those four things. It, things tend to move uh, yeah. move quite quickly. And if people are genuinely empowered, then the results are enormous. And also those expectations are always moving up. So if you had a good experience last time, well, what's new this time mm -hmm. is, is in the luxury market. And also what changed in my time, you know, if you go back to when I started, people were comparing with other British places. Now people compared, well, I was in Thailand and I had this experience. I was in Mauritius and I had this experience. Why can't I have that here? You know, so yeah. it's, they're comparing on a very global scale the quality mm. of your product. The other thing that was important and a really important lesson is that if you expect people to sell luxury product, they have to understand luxury product. Yeah. And when I got to Glenny, I couldn't understand why we weren't selling sweets. So I went to the team and said, why aren't we selling sweets? Mm -hmm. And they said, well, these days, you know, they're 600 pounds a night. And you suddenly click. These people yeah. aren't making 600 pounds a month. So, yeah. you know, they're not. So, and they've never experienced it. So why are you going to sell something you've never experienced? So yeah. we said to everybody, right, everybody, you're going to stay in the hotel a night and you're going to stay in a nice room. You're going to have breakfast. You can have a nice dinner. And then surprise, surprise, sales went storming ahead yeah. because they understood the value 
of why it was 600 pounds. So it's on both sides, the luxury experience, the customer's expectation, but also you've got to understand that the people providing the luxury have got to understand and, and feel it and understand what the customer is actually buying. Luxury in general, but certainly the hotel business is theatre. Yeah. So you've got customers arriving. So they're not being their true selves. They're, they're, oh, I'm going to Eagles. I'm going to play golf in this hotel. I'm going to be yeah. able to do this. And my wife's going to this luxury spa and completely escape. You know, it's a complete escapism. And you've got staff. They're not themselves either. They're providing. They're creating this space and experience mm. for you, the customer. Yeah. So nobody's really being themselves. Sarah Monroe. So we always start with ourselves. What can we do to be better? And how has performance in our life allowed us to build rituals, practices that have enabled us to remain strong and keep evolving? And we believe that that's what leaders are constantly asking and never more so than now. And there's a hell of a lot of pressure in the system for people. So Simon and I are constantly understanding, working out what's the new pressure and how can we support our clients in that. And I think, you know, his work in elite sport is interesting because there's so many similarities between how they're having to be more deliberate around practice. And that's really helpful to feed back into how do we help leaders be more deliberate about what they need to practice and how can we enable them and I think the main aim at the moment is to help them identify where the main effort is and protect their energy for the things that actually they can control and not feel distracted by the things that are not in their control or the noise of others. And how do you lead others through the same uncertainty? So that's our main aim right now. SHED, which stands for Sleep, Hydration, Exercise, Diet, which is the foundation of performance if we don't own that, have rituals, have ways of, of knowing what our conditions for success are in our basic shed, sleep, hydration, exercise, diet, etc. habits. If we haven't got that in play, it's very unlikely that we can bring the best of ourselves to the achievement that we're going for. So their advice was, let's call it that because it sits at the heart of all performance. So that's why it's called the shed method. But the shed method as a book is offering readers a practical way of thinking about the choices they're making and applying the lessons in that to make the choices that they want. And it dances around the system of our three brains, which I know there's an awful lot of research and opinion to say it's not just three brains. Well, it isn't, but with the busy people that we're working with, the three brain analogy is helpful, which is sort of the thing behind me. And then how do we enable people to be really conscious of the choices they're making about five energies that impact the alignment of those three brains so that we can be our best? And so the book looks at five energies, body energy, which is the shed. How do we feed our body so that we are in great shape to perform at our best? How do we then choose the most appropriate mood, mood energy? How do we applying our mood energy? Simon and I are talking a lot about mood set and mindset as well as just mindset. There's mood set. How do we help people choose their mood right now, which impacts our ability to focus our mind energy on what matters most? So our mind energy depends on our mood and it depends on how much fuel we've got in our tank. And that chain is incredibly important, substance underneath our mind energy choices. 
And they are the two sort of ace cards in the pack that can really make a difference to the choices we make are people energy, who we surround ourselves with, who's the boosting quality in our lives to keep helping us have ambition in the direction that we want. And the final one is purpose energy. How are we finding the energy of meaning? Where do we find our meaning energy from? And it's this sort of dance between those five energies, but also offering from stories of clients that we've worked with, what they choose to do to enable them to be better. James Turner. For those who don't know what risk and compliance is, what is it? What's the role, James? So really, and it's to help people make decisions with confidence. So in terms of risk, it's understanding the risks that we, are, we want to take versus those that we don't. So it's not about removing risks because you learn very early in business, you have to take risks to make money and to be able to deliver to your employees, to your customers, to your shareholders, and, and even to our regulators. So it's not about having zero risk. It's having a very proactive and thoughtful approach to the risks that you take. In terms of compliance, it's really about understanding not just what the rules and regulations are that you need to comply with, but what outcomes you're seeking for customers and what's the best way of delivering on those outcomes. And what did you learn about yourself by the time? Because you were a different leader at Peru than you were in Barclays. I, I felt that when I walked in there. It was really that initial feedback. So obviously I'd gone through an assessment center mm. and I was quite shocked by the feedback I got after I got the job. So one of the things they told me is you never spoke about legacy. So when you went through this, it was, it was more about what I'd achieved, what I wanted to achieve, what the team had achieved, but it wasn't about what you left behind. It wasn't about the sustainability of the team. And you know when it's really bang on feedback yeah. and it hits you and you think, oh my goodness, that is so true. That really hit me. And that was one of a number. I was always curious, but realizing how much I didn't know made me much more curious in terms of learning and listening to what is really going on both outside as well as inside the organization and what that meant to me and how I was leading. I think in Barclays, I'd learned to be courageous, but perhaps not vulnerable. And so one of the things that made a big difference was just kind of giving into that vulnerability. It changes you from having a strong personality, an easy way of, to actually asking more questions rather than stating opinions, listening harder, being more open-minded, classic leadership traits. But that was the difference between being a leader in Barclays and being a leader in the Peru. As a leader, you've got the risk of making a mistake and saying, well, you rejected this person who had this credibility and background. You've taken a risk on this other person. What's your thinking when you're in that mode? I mean, it's a beauty of being a risk director and a you know, senior leader in the organization is ultimately I'm responsible for everyone we hire in the teams w worldwide. And I just genuinely don't care about it anymore. Yeah. So, you know, it's like the ex-smoker thing. I really am only interested in what someone has achieved, what they, I think they can achieve, mm -hmm. what motivates them, what are their values, what are their ethics, what's their experience that's brought them to where they are today. And what are they hoping to achieve? Who are they as leaders? How do they lead when things are going badly? It's dead easy when things are going well. Mm -hmm. But when we're really tested, when things are going really badly, that's what I'm interested in. So actually, 
it's easier now because whether it's through blind TVs or you know, there are so many tools that one can use. But the whole approach to hiring has completely changed, I think. I think it's just radically shifted. And if you don't shift, you will not get the talent. I mean, here's the rub is actually I think the power is with the candidate. And I would say to those listening is you are the ones with the power to choose who you want to work for. And it's my job and my colleagues' jobs to sell the organization as a place where you want to work. Because if you don't, you can go and work a million other places or you can set up your own business and be hugely successful. I think the old school approach is dead. 